How's everybody doing? Hope y'all are having a good day. Welcome. We got the waiting room packed. People are funneling in. Super excited to have all of you guys here. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Artists of Data Science Happy Hours. It is Friday, March 12th. 2021. Super excited to have all of you guys here. Hopefully you got a chance to check out the interview that was released earlier today, which was with Dave Kelly of Analytics IQ. Um, had a great time speaking to Dave, learning about his company. He's given all of us a free data set to work with that's got 500 rows, 50 columns, which should be really fun to start doing some stuff with. So go ahead and check that out. It is right there in the show notes of the show. It's been a crazy week for me. Uh, I was on the Super Data Science podcast with John Crone over the weekend. On Monday, I was live from the Data Den with Susan Walsh. I also did an interview with AI Journal. I also got a chance to interview Tiffany Schlein. She's the author of 24-6, and she's also the woman who founded the Webby Awards, um, Emmy Award-winning director as well. So that was a lot of fun. Earlier today, I got an opportunity to uh, interview Jonathan Ives, not Jonathan Ives, I'm sorry, Jonathan Tesser, uh, somebody that we that we all know quite well. So that was a lot of fun. Um, but super excited to have all you guys here, man. Welcome, everybody. We got Tom, Tor, Kristen. We got Wiko, Russell. Awesome. We got Vikram, Naresh in the house. Dude, so happy to see everybody here. How's everybody doing? Right on. Tom, how's your, how's your week been? I've uh, transitioned back to heavy-duty coding, and it feels like, oh, I'm a little out of shape. I'm going to have to take this slow here for a while. Yeah, anyway. like heavy-duty coding in, in what sense? Oh, I'd been doing a lot of study to figure out how to get around some of the, the corners that I'd coded myself into. And uh, then I, th I all of a sudden, I'd done some diagramming of the architecture I wanted to do for my big tool. And then one morning I woke up and said, dang, I want to code. And uh, I was coding fine. It's just that I realized, oh, shoot, this is a big mountain to climb still, even though I'm ready to climb it again. It just, uh, it uh, th there's so many things to think through. I really should have a team helping me, but um, they're they're okay waiting on me a little bit right now too. So it's when, just when that's why I wrote my grit article yeah. <laughs> yesterday. That book is uh, Angela Duckworth's work is amazing. That book grit definitely had yeah. had a huge effect on me. I read it just only a couple of years ago. I think it was 2018 when I first read it, and yeah, it was uh, it was just one of those books that definitely shook my belief system and change the way I look at the world. So I highly recommend that one. So when you're coding yourself into a corner, talk to us about what, what does that mean and how can we avoid uh, doing that to ourselves? So um, I can, I can be a little too hard on myself. It's not as bad as I'm making it sound, but um, it, it's, it's a very challenging problem. It, it, it's associated with what you might call language processing, not natural language processing, but technical language processing. And when I took it on, I, I knew it'd be a challenge, but I wasn't quite sure how big of a challenge. And um, that was one of the reasons uh, I picked up Pragmatic Programmer. I thought, I need to see what I can do to get around the, it, it's like the, Dave and Andy say, your lizard brain. My lizard brain was, yes, thank you, was screaming at me. And uh, so I realized I could improve the way I was uh, structuring my data as it worked. And I, I used a lot of concepts from their book. I, start, I, I remember feeling like, oh, I'm not following dry well enough. And then I but I'll get back to that. And, and uh, I created a lot of great tools that helped me get around proof of concept. But then um, 
the way I was putting the GUI around it and um, the way I was interacting with SQL through Python was pretty cool. But And I created some really fun tools, like a tool that could say you've got 63,000 technical documents and you've got a new one coming in, I could load this giant corpus matrix, a sparse matrix, and find the closest matching document in under a half a second. That was a huge breakthrough for me, but I wasn't even doing word embeddings to get there. I was just using frequency count matrix. And then um, using, I, I trained my own glove model, global vectors. It's like word to vec but a little different. And uh, did some cool lookup engines with um, synonyms and uh, dictionary things to deal with aligning words that were close to the same meaning. And uh, but it was at that point where that was a big hurdle, and I, I. I realized I need to check out transformers just in case. And because um, what it's like, Harper, most of the time I'm saying, okay, can I find a test standard? Ah, great. If I can find a test standard, now I find a unit. Now I find a value. But then when you get into the property names, I have the honor of working with UL Prospector, best plastics database in the world by far. Uh, decades old now, grown into a great SaaS. But we have very unified terminology and presentations. The rest of the world does not. So it's a way of automating the updates and the new additions of plastics and other things like that. And I hope I'm not losing anyone here, but like making a clustering tool that deals with finding those complete properties. But the, the big last hurdle was accomplishing aligning the property names. And that's where I'm going to try to employ the transformers. But even just while taking the time out to study how I could tackle this big problem better, the, the whole tool set, it was great to take that refresher time because it wasn't just transformers. It's seeing all the clever new ways people were tokenizing things and pre-processing things. And it, it, it just germinated some new ideas to where one day I went, oh, I'm ready to go at it again. So, but I, I, I think what was the biggest single help was something Dave and Andy said in their book. And, you know, this, this was a real encouragement for us as data evangelists in, as in general, it's that we're all processing data and that book's not a data science book, the pragmatic programmer, yeah. but they made a big deal about, it's all about processing data. And I started yeah. seeing the way I was managing my data quite differently. But yeah, I like that. I'm actually going to be speaking to Andy this Wednesday. I'm going to come on to the podcast. Most of my questions are going to be coming from uh, this book, his other book, The Pragmatic uh, Guide to Thinking and Learning. Um, so most of my questions will be coming from there, but I'm going to bake in a few from Pragmatic Programmer. But yeah, definitely excited to, to speak to Andy this uh this wednesday sounds like you're doing a lot of really really interesting stuff tom that's super super oh i've never had more fun in my career i feel totally spoiled and and the nice thing is my company trusts me yeah you can't buy that that's yeah. nice are you about to show off your engineering day book is that what that is oh oh i was gonna jokingly <laughs> say um oh let me show you my copy of pragmatic programmer uh -huh. and then, oh of dennis's book Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, physical books. I can't do the, the like electronic books for some reason. Yeah. The almost, the almost, I'm sure you're 29, Harpreet. The almost 30 year old tells the almost 60 year old he'd rather have a physical book. That's hilarious. Almost 40, but uh, I'll take that. Thank okay. you. Uh, 
right on guys hey well thank you guys so much for uh joining in and thanks tom for sharing that that was really really cool um sounds like you're working on some awesome stuff shout out to everybody that just funneled in we got nicole janeway bales in the house what's up nicole good to see you again jacqueline joe eric vivian uh angelo happy to see all you guys here so there's a question in the chat from russell russell what's this general question you have something about a, something costing 69 million yeah yeah good evening uh, afternoon everybody <clears throat> hope everybody's well uh, so there's been a recent news article i've, I've pasted a uh, a url in the chat for it but the, there's been a, a a piece of artwork sold an nft artwork so that's non-fungible token artwork uh, and as i understand this basically it's similar to kind of blockchain so it allows a person to purchase ownership of a, of a virtual piece of art even though it stays in the public domain they're kind of stamped as the owner. Um, and someone has paid 69 million credits or, or, or whatever the currency was, as I think it was cryptocurrency, to own a single piece of art that seems to be 5,000 individual composited pieces of art that are high res that you can zoom in and see individually, but cannot be split and sold separately. So essentially, 69 million has, has given this person ownership of a public piece of art. So it's a lot of money to spend to just to stamp your name you know, have your name inscribed on a plaque, essentially, on a on a public piece of art. So interested to hear other people's opinions on this. So hold up, you paid that much money and it's something that he can't even really take home and I can go look at it whenever I want, anytime I want? Pretty much, as That's I understand it, yeah. I don't understand this stuff at all. It's like a real big, like, verified Twitter check mark. It's just like a lot of money for a real expensive, like, clout badge. And I'm just, I'm not, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it. So I'm really interested to see what, what some of y'all that know a lot more about uh, this stuff than, than I do have to say about it. Cause it's kind of crazy to me. I wish uh, Carlos was here. Cause he's like the crypto guy. Yeah. Wrote a book about it. We'll be talking about that book uh, on the podcast a little bit later, but yeah, I have no clue why anybody would do that. I would love to hear anybody's opinion, Joe. I've been in the tech space, I guess, long enough that anything that seems this stupid probably has a possibility of turning into something awesome. Tom knows what I'm talking about. And so do I, I, it's, it's striking. I don't even understand it yet, but I'm getting this Crypto Kitties vibe right now already. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, I got, I, got, I got friends that are in the crypto space and, you know, have their own, you know, coins and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I mean, it's something I stay away from, but I, I just learned never to second guess this kind of stuff, actually. It just has a way of taking on a life of its own. And when it seems absurdly stupid, there's actually probably some point to it that I'm not seeing. And so I never, I just learned never to write anything off and that's happening. If it seems absurd, it's probably going to be big and like in a way that you don't expect though. Right. Cause we're all trying to approach it from like this angle and it's going to be something on a left field. So yeah, that's true. Throw something out there. So like right now, you know, the, you know, like you said, somebody owns, somebody just bought, um, Jack, Jack, Twitter guy, Jack, Somebody help me with his last name. Jack Dorsey. Dorsey. Thank you. Somebody just bought Jack Dorsey's first tweet um, from several years ago, and same same kind of thing. So they have a and it's a so they have a blockchain record that they own that tweet. And yes, yeah, Harper, you can go look it up and and enjoy it anytime you want. I'm sure you look at it regularly, like I do. And uh, but so right now it's like just for like collectibles, but the other benefit of it that I understand is when you tokenize an asset like real estate or the Mona Lisa or, you know, like something that is a physical good. And then you have that record saved 
in a blockchain in a decentralized fashion so that if the place where your paper contract or a copy or deed of ownership, you know, burns down because once in a while that happens, a decentralized record still exists that you own that thing and it is it is yours until the blockchain says otherwise. So kind of the kind of where I see non-fungible tokens going over time is asset uh, tokenization of assets like physical tangible assets. I have I have a, a little uh, I guess theory about that. We've seen humans create value for something tangible for years. We we just could never understand that where you know you could see a piece of art cost millions of dollars and it's is based on different things, right? The providence, the history and the person's sentiment about that that piece. We're just starting to see it transcend to the digital world now. Um, and that tokenization that Eric is, is speaking to is to kind of, you know, uh, put a stamp on that provenance to make sure that you are the rightful owner and that history is not lost for the original piece. And, you know, with the whole digital currency, Bitcoins and all, it's just uh, us transferring our sentiment, our thoughts, like, our, the, the way we feel about a piece, we're just transferring it to the digital world. That's all That's all this is. That's that's my theory about it. So we've been doing it with the physical stuff. We're not doing it digitally. I remember when, when, really when Bitcoin became like this thing back in the day. We're talking, you know, the, the blockchain enthusiasts in like the early 2010s. There was a thought back then. Um, it reminded me a lot of like the internet, uh, you know, when that became kind of a thing in the 90s. But uh, blockchain, it was um, this this idea that if you extend it to a logical conclusion, everyone, each one of us have our, have our own coins, right? And everyone just transacts with, you know, a Harpreet coin and, and so forth, right? And then this becomes like a, a new way of doing stuff. And I'm not going to write anything off. Right? Every time I try doing that, like I said, I end up being like, you know, wrong for all the wrong reasons. So is it wrong to think that, you know, things that in the digital phase like that you own has more value when more people can see it, right? So a piece of art, you can own it to your house. Nobody can get to your house to validate the value. But I feel like digital-wise, a piece like this, this NFT selling for 69, the reason why it's holding the value too is because a lot of people can see it too, right? Maybe. Is that is there a reason behind that? The digital world forces a lot of people. You have to have a lot of people look at it to actually jump up the value maybe is that is that what you're seeing joe i don't know it's an interesting analysis i've never thought of like kind of this like uh, cpm rate for uh, like attention and nfts um this is a fascinating thought exercise and uh so now i'm gonna spend a whole weekend thinking about this so yeah thanks craig <laughs> so for like something like bitcoin Right. So the code behind all that is it's all open source. Right. So if I actually did want to fork it and create Harpreet coin or Sohota coin, like I, I, could, I could do that. It's just if people buy into this. Right. Like if, if all of us artists of data science just started mining my coins, we could make our own cryptocurrency. Is this, I don't know. I don't know if this is how it works. I need to do some more research on it. But that's no, you're spot really on. It's 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 not actually that complicated. The code is kind of heady at a Linus Torvalds level, but once you start spreading it apart, it's pretty cool. I, I'm a big fan of the Ethereum network because it, it works on a bit of a different premise. But um, yeah, like you probably would prefer to go use uh, the Litecoin code or something faster. Bitcoin is actually quite a dinosaur. It, it, you can just just um, drive yourself batty waiting for it to go through sometimes because it's just so slow and so gargantuan. But if you, I, I would like to hear everyone's thoughts on this if you're okay with it, Harper. I think the yeah, power, absolutely. yeah, I think the power of cryptocurrency is the decentralization. Now, but also it it's the spirit of uh, 
in, in Ethereum, like I'm saying, is a different animal, but the whole power of smart contracts to keep a, a decentralized, safe record for anything is also powerful, safe for your medical records, where only you could control them and transform, transform them to who you want. It's kind of like secure shell on steroids when you get down to it. But I may have said something wrong, and I'm happy for someone to correct it. You know, I think some um, uh, blockchain is useful also not just the transactions, but for verifying the lineage of products. So say something that has got the, uh, is it the, I can't remember the, the proper word, but, you know, uh, the denomination originator, you know, something that, that's protected like a, a Parmigiano Reggiano and that type of stuff. To have blockchain on that so you can prove its authenticity, that's going to be a real big thing, I think, in consumer goods. Another benefit is, you know, like, you know, harp, harp coin or whatever you end up coming up with. It, of Like Tom said, the de decentralization that is nice is I once did work with a guy in Sweden and he would pay me via PayPal in dollars. So he's trans, uh, transferring it from crones or however, whatever the currency is called exactly to dollars. And I would get destroyed on the exchange rate because it was an international exchange. But when he would pay me in Bitcoin and then I would change it out to be dollars, it was exactly the same as if he had paid me in dollars. I only had to pay the 1.5% rate selling it through coin uh, when I would sell it through Coinbase and turn it into dollars. So having a decentralized currency really facilitates cross-border transactions. Yeah, it's super. That sounds super great, Eric. And I bet Joe's you wish you get some of those in the wallet though, hey? Joe's talking about how on Clubhouse, it's all just crypto people. Like uh, one of my idols, Naval Ravikant, is on Clubhouse and he does a lot of crypto talks and he said, join in on one of those and just get up on up to speed on this before I uh, talk to Carlos about it for our interview. Um, but yeah, great topic. I actually just message Carlos, see if he wants to come in because we're going heavy on uh, crypto stuff. But in the meantime, let's go ahead and turn it over to some questions. First question I got on deck is from Eric. And then after that, if anybody has a question, go ahead, send me a message. I'll add you to the queue. Eric, go for cool. it. Yeah. So I was curious just to know what people's first quote unquote data project was as far back as you can remember, um, Cole, Joe, Greg, you know, like what was the first project that you remember? Because now, you know, we get on LinkedIn and we see everybody who's got their, you know, their deep neural network or whatever that they're doing, which, but it's not super practical because most of us aren't doing that for our first project. So if you, as you think back, what was the first project you really did with data and what was your role in it? Yes. My first project, like that was a data science related project was I was using clinical data from back when I was a biostatistician. So I did this while I was a biostatistician. And the whole point of the project was for me to use uh, blood tests and lab results to predict whether or not somebody would have a serious adverse reaction to the drug that we're giving them. And I used something simple. I used random forest and logistic regression and compared the two, um, you know, did a baseline as a, I think my baseline was just to predict that uh, everybody would, would get like some type of, I forgot what the baseline was, but those are the two that I used to compare after that. Uh, it was super simple and it was enough for me to get a handle on how to use Python, how to use Jupyter Notebooks and and how to build a machine learning model and psych learn. Uh, let's turn this over to, um, let's hear from, actually let's hear from Nicole and then we'll hear from, uh, after Nicole, we'll go over to maybe Jacqueline and Curtis. Cool. Yeah. Well, 
for me, my first models were just statistical models. So, I mean, I think data science can be as simple as running an ANOVA, which you can do in Excel. It's kind of an underrated data science tool, I'd say. Um, and uh, yeah, we did like t-tests when I was a consultant. So we were looking at two products out of a manufacturing plant. We were trying to determine, okay, if we change up the processes on one line, is this product ultimately substantially different than the product on the on the other line and you can just determine that using a t-test um which has been around since the 800s and um yeah so those are my first uh my first data science projects i think that the field originated with statistics oh man well if you put it that way then yeah back in grad school i was doing some interesting projects i did one where i was man grad school for me was like i probably did this project 10 years ago and it was using poker data that had scraped or pulled from the world series of poker and cool. using a bunch of the metrics that they had creating, I literally created features and um, different measures of how volatile a player was to determine their winning percentage at the end of whatever, some period of time. I can't remember. Damn, that was a long time ago, but yeah, yeah, it was a lot yeah. of fun. Um, but yeah, excellent point. Yeah, statistics is actually data science, so you could do that. Um, and still consider it as data science. Jacqueline, how about you? And we'll go to Curtis after that, and then we'll open it up to uh, Joe and Tom and whoever else. So it's a similar vein for me as well. I think uh, my um, the first models would be in a statistics class as well. So in my case, I was doing uh, regression in time in a time series uh, modeling and comparing different uh, modifications of uh, uh, stochastic gradient descent. Um, but yeah, I'm still trying to jump into a model that would be more uh, um, like in, in industry. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun, Curtis. Hey, how's everyone doing? Um, good man, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, so I'll talk about my first. NLP project because my actual first project, if I talk about it, is probably one of them forbidden projects you never speak about, Titanic. <laughs> um, so my first NLP project was a sentiment analysis task where I'm trying to um, predict whether a tweet is talking about a disaster or not, but there's different types of like intricacies within the data where there's like, there's um, uh, ambiguity, ambigu oh my God, my tongue. <laughs> Ambiguous, ambiguous, whatever. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say. Ambiguous, man. You're from England. You're supposed to know your language. You know what I'm trying to say. But anyways, I worked out, so I'm, my shoulders are hurting. <laughs> I can't get my words out. But yeah, so um, there's a lot of that big word um, words within the data set, which makes it difficult. Curtis, you went on mute, man. Have I been on mute? No, what just uh, no, just for the last like ten seconds or so. <laughs> Oh my god! I literally just finished working out, so my shoulders are making my brain not work properly. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, I thought my current task sentiment analysis. It's the models I built were like logistic regression model, a naive Bayes classifier, a random forest, XG boost. Uh, I done a bit of deep learning, but in all in all honesty, the the more complex models were really unnecessary for the data set I used. Um, it was just like let's just do it sort of thing. Um, I recently uploaded the project and I used the LSTM to connect to the web server, but I'll probably change it because there's a bit of latency and I'm just like, it's not even, it's not even necessary because um, the accuracy you're getting is literally like fractions more with a deep learning model where I can just use like a simple model and get a response in like seconds. So yeah. yeah that's a fancy one. I, I like how, how Eric here in the chat said um, how doing something in Excel was considered a project. And so it, 
back in the day, it's like 2008-ish, I'd say. might have been 2000, 2008, 2009. Like, I was fucking broke. Like, like could barely pay my rent broke. So what I would do is I would, this is when Craigslist was a thing. I would offer my services up on Craigslist and do people's entire statistics classes for them uh, for a fee. So I would, I would literally, and I would show up to classes and take exams in community colleges. And I would do the, all the electronic stuff for the University of Phoenix students. Um, yeah. So I was doing this, this for a while and it just reminded me of, of that. So I guess if you, <laughs> those were some of my first projects as well, that was a lot of fun. Um, anybody else want to talk about their? I did first- not just hear Harpreet Sahota say all of that. I did not yeah, hear man, that. Yeah, hey, you got to do what you got to do to get by sometimes, dude. Uh, it wasn't like I, I wasn't the one d- doing anything academically dishonest. I was just a dude. Uh, it was the students that were being academically dishonest. They were tutoring. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I was Very a consultant. on tutoring. Yeah, it was just essentially. So this is sounding like the premise of Suits. Have you guys seen that program? I was thinking about the same thing. Yeah. Well, actually, very much similar to that. Yeah. You know, Harpreet, I do want to give you credit. That was one step above making meth. Good job. (laughs) Yes, I was not breaking bad uh, at all. Uh, I'd love to hear anybody else who wants to talk about their first project. And in the meantime, while people are sharing their first projects, if you have a question, let me know. I'll go ahead and add you to the queue. I, I had an idea, Eric. Was, was the question uh, data science specific or was it just kind of like the first time you remember you can kind of comprehend using data, like working with yeah, in a sense? Kind of, kind of more oriented to that. Like, because like, for example, like my first project that I can really think of several years ago, I was working as a, I was like a manager in a, in a, in a manufacturing area and we cast gold and silver rings and we had a lot of problems with um, holes in the gold when we would cast. And so we would get together as a team every day and talk about like, okay, well, how are we doing with the temperature, the casting temperature, the flask temperature, all these different like parameters of it. And so I just like literally would hand out a new sheet to every one of my people every day and they would count when they had problems. And then I would go and put it, hand put it into Excel and make graphs and stuff and then take it, stick it to the wall every morning so that we could look at them and say, well, this is the thing that we tried yesterday. We changed the flask temperature on our 10 karat white gold. Did it help? And that, you know, like there was no prediction, anything. It was just like very rudimentary. I'm just making this stuff in Excel and we're hand counting things, but it was better than nothing. So that's kind of like, to me, it was like, it's data, not, and, and it's science because it's scientific method. So we'll call it data science. Uh, you yeah, would go. That, yeah, that, that makes sense uh, for for me, I was just thinking I was one of those kids in like middle school that sold candy. You know what I mean? So I would tell my parents to like, yo, let's go to Costco or Sands or something, get them in bulk and undercut the the school, you know, during lunches and, and the vending machines and all that and uh, sell them for, for me out of a shoebox. It was all like nicely partitioned. I thought it was thought it was super dope. Ended up making, making a, a couple hundred bucks in middle school. So until they told me to stop, but yeah i don't know how legit that is but in my head using data they're selling it at a price i feel like i could do better and it worked out so some retail arbitrage right there man that's that's awesome my uh my first my first one is kind of like like you we go for me i used to have summer summer job uh for my parents they they own store uh and i used to run their supply chain their inventory so i was using data there and getting a, a couple bucks there but the one that sticks stuck with me was during my masters uh that was focused around supply chain and in business it was this class that was just this uh big you know 
three months, four months long simulation. And um, our role was to uh, run a business and drive the business strategy, including the price and ordering strategy. And you were running, competing against a machine. That machine had the other business competitors. So it was kind of like Walmart and other retailers. And for us, we're using uh, linear programming to kind of like figure out the optimal price in terms of price strategy and then the optimal ordering uh, uh, levels for your products that you wanted to purchase. And then you run the simulation, it would tell you, okay, based on your price strategy, um, you end up making more money than Walmart, which was really the computer simulation uh, versus us as kids, as students uh, who were running that. So I, I, it really stuck with me uh, uh, in that case. So that's why supply chain has a special heart in my special place in my heart, including optimization. So shout out for supply chain. We cut my teeth in that too. I, I would say the supply chain is still one of the more data interesting areas, um, just because it has a tangible impact and it has like real consequences if you are right or hopefully not wrong. Um, so yeah, I totally get it. Like I said, in the chat, I'm trying to think, I mean, I got into this stuff a long time ago, like late nineties, early two thousands. Like I think the first one that stands out, I think was, um, I was helping this company, uh, they had a giant call center. Um, they were doing a lot of direct response ads, which at the time for people who don't remember, there was a thing called a television and then you would put ads on it and then you would drive calls to an 800 number and then they would call a number and then you would get orders that way. And so, uh, so my job was to, um, one of my jobs was to help predict call center volume. So I just uh, finished my math degree. So I think a lot of things that came in handy there was like um, probabilities. So things like Markov chains, I think came in handy. And then there was also, um, uh, what was it called? Erlang C, I think it was. So it's a formula you can use to, um, you know, um, predict a, well, it's using call centers a lot. So, um, and then, then that same company moved into a supply chain. So shout out to Greg for mentioning that because I, I think supply chain, um, uh, problems are some of the most fun and they're some of the most dynamic because you're not just dealing with like an internal, uh, like an isolated use case, you're dealing with a supply chain. So it's like many players involved in a chain and, um, you have to figure out a way that it's all going to work. Uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty involved. So that sounds really, really fascinating. Like linear programming is something that I haven't come across in years. It's been so long since I've used that stuff. Is that still, I actually, one of my friends, he that? is a, um, so, if you heard of extra space storage, they're like a very large um, storage company. So they're based in Salt Lake City. Um, my friend, he's their chief data scientist there. And he gave a talk um, kind of about how they use linear programming to come up with uh, dynamic pricing models for the storage units. So they take into account things like search traffic and a bunch of other factors. And at the end of the day, they're using um, methods like simplex and probably more complicated things to uh, develop a dynamic pricing model for um, storage units. So yeah, I think it's, at least in their case, they're still using it. And I think in supply chain, it's still very used because it's just like it's simple like why you want complicated so but it seems yeah. like you have a linear problem to solve right so i uh, I, I, I sat down through a presentation by expedia for example companies like expedia they are using some sort of solver like optimization uh, uh constraints to send signals to an ml model for dynamic pricing so based on you know those demands and how to you know move the price with regards to uh, this this machine learning model would uh, predict what price they should offer to customers based on what they wanted to buy, when they wanted to buy it, where they wanted to buy. And then based on those, you know, 
uh, linear programming, you know, constraints that signals that it would receive. So it was super cool that to see, you know, solver being merged with ML to, to perform these tasks. So companies like Expedia use that all the time. That's really cool. So I want to hear uh, Angelo's uh, first project. Angelo, are you still here? Yes, you are. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. So that goes, uh, goes a while back. Uh, probably academic years. Um, so my, so I was working a lot with uh, MATLAB at the time and I was, uh, uh, I started engineering, electrical computer engineering. Uh, so for my dissertation at the time I did, I was working with uh, sort of uh, small mobile robots and I was doing some simulations to kind of um, try and uh, map out basically obstacle avoidance algorithms. But in order to do that, you need to map the, you know, the, the, the world that they were, moving around so uh, it was kind of predicting whether based on the sensors around the robot building a map the probabilistic map the, the probability of having an obstacle or, or not and then and then as you move around and explore the space uh, kind of build uh, a cumulative kind of view of the world as you build it like uh, so um, yeah and uh, yeah that was interesting uh, so for that I implemented two three different algorithms um, and that was kind of simulations in MATLAB and then I think Tom men- mentioned simulink <laughs> that's that's interesting then in, in my in my masters, I went to um, so I, I I did that in Reading. There was a cybernetics department. They were doing all about robots and stuff. And they had an industrial uh, robotics manipulator from the ones that you see in kind of production lines. And these are the ones where they have like the six degrees of free, of freedom. And that was connected to a computer with a Simulink installation of MATLAB. And then you could write your program. And then I remember they had in, in the lab, there was a the big red industrial button in case something happens. So every time I had to run this experiment to kind of uh, give it a reference signal and see whether they can, uh, whether they can uh, track it. Uh, I was playing, playing the simulation and the, and the hand was on the red button in case it goes, cr- it goes crazy because the talk uh, uh, until it kind of, uh, the algorithm stabilizes the the, the manipulator it was going really high the torque initially so that was a kind of real-time experiment no simulation so it was like it was like okay i have to stop this <laughs> and everybody's worked on some really really interesting stuff tom's talking about how he did a project with linear models by hand because his teacher apparently was the guy who invented linear models i'm not sure if i read that right <laughs> Well, Harpreet, it's like this. There was dirt. God created dirt, and then I started my undergrad. It's about like that. Uh, that's awesome. So thanks for uh, having a sense of humor, Tom. So anybody else want to share their first project? If not, then we'll move on to a question that we have here from uh, Anas, which is... have got a couple of quick examples. Stuff. Yeah, please go for it. Uh, so, so the first one I can remember, it, it may be a little tenuous here, but uh, I think it's data-related, and it was in my primary school. Uh, so I maybe have been five or six at the time, and it was indexing. And we essentially did it in a physical format. So we got a lot of index cards. We wrote categories on them, and we punched holes in the top of them. And the ones that were positive for the category, we left at the top of the hole. The one that was negative, we cut out the top, stacked them all together, and we basically pushed a word through and pulled them up to pull out what was positive for the, for the index. Uh, and that's... Yeah, I mean, I'm going back a long time here. Maybe not quite as long as Tom, but uh, yeah, I think I, I might be only uh, single digits behind Tom here. But um, yeah, that was that was real early, and uh, yeah, it's only indexing, but I think it uh, I think it qualifies for data. The first proper electronic data thing I did was probably in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, when I was working for a company, we had a lot of field engineers that did a lot of uh, um, 
maintenance work, uh, and I was I was asked to do some analysis on the uh, the places they were going to to perform the maintenance and the fuel receipts they were booking. So to do some analysis, so it wasn't using any um, data science as it were, but it was um, passing the data to look for trends to identify any anomalies or outliers that would indicate perhaps you know someone was trying to steal fuel, you know, take uh, extra jerry cans there, fill up the fuel, take it home for the car, that kind of stuff. So that was probably the first real world proper data analysis I did, but it wasn't proper data science. You know, I was using Excel 95, I think at the time I was writing, you know, compounding formulas rather than using proper algorithms. But that was, that was my first kind of taster of, of data analysis. And so many wide and varied like problems people worked on that's so fascinating to me. Um, I have a, you, yeah, oh, go for it, man. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I was about to say, uh, one of my, not necessarily my first, because like we've all had like the science classes and, and stats classes, but the project that I kind of used as my litmus test to see whether or not I want to pursue data science was uh, my master's thesis, um, where I did a propensity score matching analysis, seeing whether or not SNAP, which is a supplemental nutrition assistance program, um, improved self-reported uh, well-being or not. Um, so I had like the CDC data set that I pulled from the government. And um, it was my first really large foray into R. So I taught myself R to, to do this. And uh, it was the first like statistical analysis I did that wasn't associated with the class um, and a lot of data cleaning for it and, and figure out the kind of experimental design. Um, what specifically why this project sticks out to me is I remember the horror of the stats uh, um office hours helping group when I showed up my code and there was 128 variables I was kind of matching for. And I had to create dummy variables for them. I did them all by hand in the code or manually. And I didn't know you can just set them as a category, as a data type. So I, I spent weeks creating these dummy variables only to learn that about data types, <laughs> um, which was, I, that seared into me pretty, pretty heavily. But uh, that project where I really liked, but even though it wasn't like predicting anything, it, I kind of use the foundations from that project a lot of my current work for like um, kind of just thinking about statistics and like thinking about experimental design, how that informs kind of like your questions. Statistician. I like that one. Um, but I mean, that's, that's the thing, man. Like you don't know what you don't know unless you, you know come to meetings like this or go to those offices where people are like, dude, there's an easier way to do that, man. But uh, that's cool, man. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, next question is going to go up to uh, Anasip. I think it is a NLP related question. So if anybody has the answer to this question, feel free to take the floor immediately. Hey, thank you, Harpreet. So I'm working on this uh, sentiment analysis project and I collected a bunch of comments from different Facebook posts and now started with labeling. So when I was labeling, uh, it was very difficult to know what is positive and what is negative. Because at the beginning, I know what the post is, so it was easy. And I was like, oh, no, maybe now I'm biased. So I randomized the comments, and I've kind of like lost sense of what is positive and what is negative. Now, to make sure of that, I actually made a small survey on Facebook, and people like chose if it's positive, negative, or neutral. And the answers were extremely different. So I want to know like what like what is the approach when you start labeling your sentences? Like the word, oh my God, if the post is a positive post, it's going to be a positive sentence. And if it's a negative, it's going to be a negative sentence. So I don't know if anybody have information about that. Yeah, it's interesting. If anybody has a uh, suggestion for that, go for it. But I mean, I would say like this, if you have like the same sentence and you're going up to the public and asking them to label the sentiment of this of this particular sentence, but you're getting varied responses, I would just take like the, the mode 
response, right? If mode, the mode thing, like if people, the overwhelming majority of people say, oh my God, in this context is negative, then classify that as negative. I, but I, again, I don't know much about uh, NLP or how that would work. Um, Tom, you were talking about NLP at the start of the hour. So I'm going to go to you first. I was just holding up Dennis's book again. Um, I thought, and it, I think it could even be fun. Go find a existing transformer that does sentiment analysis. It might blow you out of the park without training it any, but you could, you could likely, uh, what's called transfer learning. I prefer call it transfer train the transformer on your specific data set and it'll get even better at your specific data set. Um, maybe if you can do it without a transformer first, because um, it transformers are actually easier once you know them, but just kind of getting up to speed with um, using them and training them or transfer training them can be a bit of a burden, but just that's one option for you. So Tom, if anybody's interested in learning transformers for context of NLP, is there like certain keywords to search? Because when I type transformers into Google, I just get robots. Yeah, no, that's, uh, if you do uh, machine learning transformers, it's a huge help. Thanks, Harpreet. That's right. And uh, just message me. Uh, I, I'm going to just be honest. I, if it weren't for Marcin Beards telling me, Tom, the attention mechanism is just a graph neural network. And I was like, thank you, Marcin. Oh, thank you. That helped. And then one night I was frustrated reading papers before I got Dennis's book. And so just so I could keep going and maybe get over some humps, I just started searching YouTube and I found these really super good explanations of the papers with animated equations or excuse me, moving of numbers and, and passing things through the transformers. And I, I'm happy to send those to anyone here. Just ask me. They, it was really helpful. And then it was so much easier um, when I got Dennis's book to understand everything. Yeah. Hugging face is good. Uh, Google brain is good. The, it, in fact, it's a little dizzying how many good resources there are for transformers. By the way, uh, I don't think this would be appropriate for the specific thing you were asking, but you can actually get GPT-2 for free, different versions of it, and then transfer train that thing. I, I just, it's fascinating age we live in. Uh, my my project much. is, uh, so uh, I said that like two weeks ago, my project is about the Libyan dialect. So I don't know if the idea of transferring a, a, an existing model will work with this one. So I, I, need, I, I have to do, go through the labeling. Which dialect did you say? Libyan, Arabic Libyan dialect. Yeah, you, you would want a transformer that was already trained in Arabic. And I, I'm not saying they don't exist, but yeah, for sure. You could, you could use a transformer to translate Arabic to English and then use an English one and then go back. I but I don't think you that. want to do it. It's, po it's possible. <laughs> Mark, go for it. Sorry. Oh, I was actually going to suggest uh, the translation one uh, for, our, for our product at my job. Um, we have international customers and a whole team to, to translate our content for different, different groups. And so when I did an NLP project, it was it wasn't fancy. It wasn't doing like sentiment analysis or the pre-built model, but um, we did translate first and then run the model in English. And I think that's because there's a lot more models trained in English. But I think what I've been seeing is that there's there's been some interesting... Um, I think Facebook recently came out with a model that can translate. Instead, a lot of translations will go from like, say, for instance, you want to go from one language that wasn't English to another language. They will transfer. They'll go from language one, English, language two, 
but now Facebook has a model where you just go straight from language one to language two. Um, so you, you maybe there's a potential where there might be a language that's similar to the initial language you're going for. So like, I know like there might be certain like characters or certain uh, certain like ways of words that are not common in English. I don't I don't know the language you're you're using how it's how it's structured, but maybe something you can look into is like finding similar languages that already have a model and making that that transfer over. Yeah, that's a good idea. Thank you. So Anas, uh, we got we got Ben Taylor in the house. If you want to reiterate your question, maybe Ben might have some insight into it. And also guys, if you have not yet already, be sure to check out the interview that was released today by Andrew Jones of Data Science Infinity. He's got this uh, talk talk show podcast called the uh, the Hidden Layer. Released an episode today with Ben. I was listening to it earlier today. Uh, definitely go check that out. I'll make sure to drop a link right here for that. Uh, but and I'll also let you restate your question, and then maybe Ben might have some insight for you. Uh, so my question was about labeling sentences. I'm working on this NLP project, and I have to label my own sentences. Uh, I collected a bunch of comments from Facebook and my problem was how to define what is positive, what is neutral, what is negative. Because after I randomized the comments, I took them out of the context. It was very difficult to do that. And I even made a small survey on Facebook. Facebook and people had contradicting opinions of what is positive, what is negative. So I don't know how can I label my sentences. Uh, that's tricky. So are you trying to label them for sentiment or trolling? Sentiment. Okay, sentiment. Um, I think this came up a couple of times ago. It wasn't re- related to your specific project, but sentiment is interesting because it's kind of in the eye of the beholder. So are we talking Twitter sentiment, Amazon price action, like Amazon reviews or price action? And so maybe think of it as a vote by committee. So if you go through and personally label it, where you have like negative, neutral, positive, or you assign a numeric scale, there will be some questions that are unknown. You do have the option, you could do a continuous scale. You could also have an other category where maybe think of like humble AI or you refuse to give a sentiment score. So if I say like dinner's tonight at seven, what's the sentiment score on that? You could say it's neutral, but you could also come up with an other category where it's more of a binary. You say, here's a sentence that I'm willing to assign sentiment to. And here's a sentence where I have no interest. And I'd actually rather get it flagged and say, we will not... um, so that could be an option. So rather than just running to labeling sentiment, you could start by having sentences where you even decide if they're worthy of sentiment. Um, yeah, that that's tough when you're voting, but it kind of reminds me of attraction. So attraction, if you go through and label it, then it's just going to be your attractiveness model. Same with sentiment. If you just go through and hand label it, then it'll be specific to you. So anytime you can crowdsource that mechanical Turk or bring other people in that you work with and have them do it, It'll help smooth that out. Thank you. Just to give you some additional hope, if you do want to check out Transformers, and I'm not not really recommending it, I'm just throwing it out there as an option. In chapter eleven, chapter eleven of Dennis's book, it's detecting customer mo- emotions to make. Stop predictions. it, Tom! Stop it! Stop endorsing that book. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, so Roberta Distilbert, he's got some pre-built models in there, or he's he he walks you through examples for that. And Ben, I still believe in you. You can beat my commercial. I know you can. So if you guys haven't seen Tom's endorsement of that book, it's amazing. And it, I think he crushed it. And the funny thing is I'm on deck to endorse the same book. And I was going to do it the same week when I saw Tom's, because I'm competitive. So when I saw his video, I'm like, damn it, damn it. Because like, yeah. whatever, I, it, it'll be funny if I actually end up doing the endorsement now. I'm going to do it, Tom. I'm I'm not going to let you but down. Ben, what's funny is I'm not competitive. I'm a more together guy. And I'm like, Ben, let me help you make yours better. Let's do it. <laughs> so let me know. <laughs> yeah, Dennis is a really, really interesting character. I interviewed him a while back. That podcast not, that episode is not going to be released for another month or so, but I was editing it. Um, 
the other day and man, we were like all over the place talking about all sorts of stuff. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy that one. Um, we got queued up. I've got Greg then tour, but before we get to that, um, it's an interesting uh, comment here by Joe that, that I found it something that we should probably unpack a little bit because I, I, I resonate with this. He Joe says that he suspects the title data scientist will start splitting into more specific roles as things consolidate. Uh, something along the lines that uh, Vin was talking about maybe like a month ago or something like that as well. Um, so Joe, like what would be some some roles that would kind of be more defined under this data science Probably some new roles, but I think it's kind of a back to the future moment too, right? So like people who are data scientists and marketing will probably see to be like marketing analysts or marketing like engineers, you know, because the, the, the only difference between, I think, what in our, in our previous discussion about like our, our, you know, our first projects or, you know, our first shops back in the 1800s or whatever it was, like um, it, the only thing that's really changed is I think the, the amount of data and the engineering requirements have changed the approach and maybe some approaches, right. But that, that also goes hand in hand with the new um, uh, technologies that are available, right. Like deep learning wouldn't have been possible, you know, without GPUs and, massive scale and, you know, and all this other stuff, right? And so, um, but if you look back at the, the actual statistical approaches, there's not, especially stuff that's used in industry, I'm not, I'm not including um, AI research, but um, stuff that, you know, is used routinely in industry, there's not, I mean, show me new math that's come out using new techniques that hasn't been around for several decades. There's not. And, and for the most part, a lot of companies, when you're solving most common business problems, you don't, it's not a big data problem, right? And so I, because I, so when I start hearing, you know, what, what a lot of data scientists are doing, and I step back, I'm sure, you know, other people in the chat see the same thing. You're like, well, that's, that doesn't seem any different than what was done kind of, you know, pre-data science. And so um, I was talking to somebody else about this today, and it just seems like the, the, the term data science, it meant something when it first came out, I think back in the kind of late 2000s, early 2010s, but it since has grown to encompass, I think, a lot more roles. And so it's really confusing, actually, when you think about, like, what, what is a data scientist? I mean, it used to mean, like, it used to actually be this, like, really dumb Venn, Den, uh, Venn diagram from Drew Conway, which is, like, um, you know, I got, like, um, programming skills and stat skills and domain knowledge and, like, nunchuck skills and, like, whatever the fuck. And now it's, like, I, I have no idea what it means. And so my, my personal take is that it's going to, it's, it, the titles are going to become a lot more bifurcated and meaningful um, because it has to. Um, I mean, like the title dentist doesn't mean you're also a podiatrist, right? Like it's kind of specific to a role. And, and I, but I see data science kind of going off into incorporating a bunch of stuff. So, but that's my prediction. And who knows, I might be wrong. But yeah, I definitely agree with that prediction. Thanks for for elaborating on that. Appreciate it. So next up in the queue, we got I uh, got Greg, then Tor, then Mark for questions. If anybody else has a question that they'd like to ask, um, let me know, and I'll add you to the queue. Greg, go for it. Yeah. So I, I think it's a Cool transition too. My question is for Ben. Uh, you did a video uh, the other day that resonated. Uh, I, 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 I like to think of myself as a future thinker. Um, and you painted this uh, 10-year vision of, of what you know the future might be in terms of technology where you, you, you're talking about, you know, having a, uh, you know, a system where you can hold natural conversation with the system that allows you to focus on uh, your creative uh, uh, thinking or creative processes. Well, the, the question I have for you is, do you see a world where uh, machine 
will be able to uh, you know create algorithms from scratch? And if so, what what how are researchers now going to uh, be more productive? And what is that uh, uh, picture for uh, the the whole data science group? How can they create value for in a world where automation is more robust and more uh, natural and more integrated in, into our lives, where we almost don't even feel it in it. So yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I think it's funny because in data science, you have all these algorithms and we feel like it's a complete understanding. We're like, oh yeah, you got to know all this stuff. But there's these other algorithms that data scientists don't really talk about. And so one of those is genetic programming. And so for people that know, know genetic programming, there's something called symbolic regression where it'll actually fit a line, but it'll fit it with symbols, like literally pieces of a function and all of them are valid. They don't actually, it's not like random function pieces. There's tree structures. And Michael Schmidt, he's actually did a robot. He was acquired a uh, Newtonian. He was one of the like leading experts on genetic programming, um, but genetic programming can be much more than symbolic regression. And there's actually applications today. They feel a little bit more academic, but I believe you can go, someone can go look this up and correct me. I believe one of the most efficient traveling salesman algorithms so the traveling salesman problem, the most efficient solver was not written by a human. I believe it was written by genetic programming. I believe that's something I saw. And so we're starting to see hints of that. The dream is to, I feel like these two worlds are separate. So what I just described, genetic programming has nothing to do with deep learning at all. It's, com it's a completely different thing. But then we see GPT-3 making some coding functions. And I think they're still in the cute category or the curious category. Like we see them we're like, whoa, this is neat. But I think in the next five or 10 years, there's people on this call that are going to not have to write a lot of code because you will actually give requests to the computer like you would to a junior engineer, maybe not to a senior engineer, but to a junior engineer, hey, I, I need this. And the computer can just offer it up. I think that was maybe the first part of your question is I, I kind of wanted to, I have uh, just kind of this childlike love for genetic programming. It's been a long time since I've really d dove into it. But it, uh, does anyone else agree with that? Cool. That genetic programming is like a forgotten superpower that just never yeah. comes up in data science? Ben, it's super cool. It's one of those things where I think, when am I going to be able to get back to looking at that? Damn, yeah. I got to work on this other thing right now. Well, and, but, and, you know, you're right to mention, oh, go on, go on. Well, I was just going to bring later. up a pet peeve. So one of my pet peeves, if you want to like see my eye twitch a little bit, people interchange genetic algorithms and genetic programming incorrectly. And I, I noticed for me, I just, I don't know why that bugs me. Anyway, every, keep going, Tom. No, I was only going to add, I think GPT-3 is so cool, but we've got to remember if you take a, a transformer with one one hundredth of the number of parameters and you specialize train it, it can beat GPT-3 at that specialized task. But at the same time, when we look at what is super cool about GPT-3, we've got to remember it's interpolating existing knowledge. It can't extrapolate outside existing knowledge. And so an AI would have to be able to interpret need and fulfill it, or at least make a, a valid attempt that a human could take it from there. And, and that means that trans, excuse me, AI has to ponder it has to conceptualize beyond what's available to its memories or what it's learned. And I don't think we even know the right kind of questions to ask ourselves on how to get there yet. And once we can even entertain the questions of how do we turn those kind of processes into math, we might get there. The closest thing I see to it is reinforced learning, but getting some kind of reinforced learning system wrapped around some transformer type things and other great methods, getting that to train even on the 
gargantuan supercomputer the OpenAI group did? I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe once quantum arrives and we've learned to ask the right questions, we might have a hope, but that's my philosophical rambling and it just wore me out. Sorry. Yeah, that's interesting. I posted a link here for anybody that's interested. I'll also put it on the show notes um, for me. Actually, a data robot post about symbolic regression from scratch with python was it written uh, so, by michael schmidt curious, uh, so he's our chief scientist i'm curious doesn't have uh, an author on it but it was written at the end of last year uh, okay december 21st okay uh, a quick factoid to throw out to the group genetic programming it's actually impossible for it to generate code that isn't valid code that will execute where i believe with gpt3 i haven't played with it i think it could actually write code that bonks it's not valid code. And so that's kind of an interesting distinction. Um, it, it, I, I don't want to take too long, but there there was a point in my life, I think it was in 2009, that I was obsessed with using genetic programming to write uh, metaheuristics, uh, which I think at the time, some people called them hyperheuristics. So if you take a genetic algorithm, particle swarm, bad algorithm, cuckoo algorithm, like there's there's hundreds of these. And if you look at them, they all have a di- di- intensification, diversification component. They all have the stochastic initialization. And if you stare at all these algorithms, you see similarities. And so I was playing with genetic programming. Can I actually have it build the next version of a more robust? And there's a basket of problems you t- can test these on. But in even what I'm describing, people would call foul and say, no free lunch theorem. Like they, they'd kind of bring these things up and say, you're wasting your time. Anyway, that for a while, that was a year long obsession of my obsession of mine. Real cool. Real quick, Ben, the way I see GPT-3, it's kind of like a boilerplate on steroids. It, it can, it can throw out some great starter code, but you probably would still have to debug it and refactor it a little or add to it. Is that your take from what you've seen? I haven't had a chance to play with it, but I think it's on the roadmap this year because I work for the marketing group. So we have the, we have the flexibility to actually do some of the more creative projects. And so I'm hoping to kind of get my hands dirty this year and and, and play with it, really to cross that uncanny valley and do something that feels a little creepy or fu- or funny. I took yeah. some of the uh, the source code for because you can tell it to like make a make a red button and put it here, kind of like you would with a web page and that kind of stuff. And the code looked pretty legit, um, but you know if you had to make an API, I don't. I mean. Can you imagine code reviewing that goddamn thing? Like, you know, the, the <laughs> like, simple oh, stuff. Oh, I need to fix these. Com- you need to fix this over here. Um, like that would be pretty funny if you had to uh, do a code <laughs> review with GPT three. You kind of have to silo off parts of it and be like, this runs and it passes the test. Never look inside. Yeah, and leave. What you get? Leave code comments in GitHub for it that it has to interpret and then fix. So that'd be pretty cool. Um, but I guess it depends on uh, how brave you are in putting that in production on a first go. Yeah, if you could, so, if, if you could segment requests to GPT three for code and you know, do it in small enough bytes, it probably would save you a ton of time. This, uh, this company this company called Ideas AI is uh, using GPT-3 to, every week, they run like a list of business ideas generated by GPT-3 and it sends it to, to your email. So I read that from time to time and I, and I read the ideas and I'm like, come on, that doesn't make any sense sometimes. And then sometimes I go, oh, well, that sounds pretty cool. And um, people who consume that information kind of upvote the best ideas. So what happens to these ideas, I'm not too sure, but I receive those emails just about every week to, to go through them, but it's generated by GPT. So I thought that was quite cool. Right well, some good discussion. Let's go ahead and move on to Tor's question. And then after Tor, we'll go to Mark. I have one. Hope you all had a good week. Um, the question I have, it, it's related to a process that I'm in right now. 
uh, as you all probably aware, I'm working on this SaaS uh, project and website solution for my industry. And as part of that, right now, I'm in the process of designing and conceptualizing a financial analysis tool with three sources of data that's coming in. One is the transactional data, which technically is just each transaction that's been made. Then you have the supporting documentation, which is like in PDF format, Word formats, Excels, etc., which is basically the supporting vouchers or invoices. And then you have the third item, which it's linked to, which is the contracts from the suppliers, also linked back to the financial transaction data. Now, the question I have is, A, is it possible for today's technology or analysis, et cetera, to be able to go into transactional data, match it up with keywords or look for key the details in the vouchers and the contracts and generate basically a list of references or page numbers, et cetera. That's step one. The second part of it is once that list has been created, the user will then actually go in and do their own keyword searches or analysis and match and link and mark, etc. And then that is to be uh, used to support the list. Now, the final step is ML. This is the question where how can ML um, learn from these three steps? of matching, et cetera, so that for future, it will then be able to generate suggested keywords or the matching in the various contracts, the vouchers, and the transaction list. So that's the part one. The next question is, like as I said, like is it possible? The next question is the complexity of this, the cost of doing such a project, what would I have to expect from a budget point of view? <laughs> uh, sorry. I miss. It's mind bender, but it sounds kind of similar to what you're describing earlier, Tom. Like the flavor of that question feels like what you're talking about at the top of the hour. Tor, I apologize. I was trying to track you, but um, my brain started doing this while I was listening to you. If you could summarize, I'll try my best. Technically, that's why I'm asking the question, trying to formalize it now, because in my head as well, the, the, it, becomes quite complex. So the first step is, in simple terms, I think, is that you have three sets of data sources. There's going to be some sort of matching between those three. In step two, you will have a user interaction where they will then analyze the linkage that's been found by the system of matching and evaluate. And then, of course, some keywords or whatever else they want to look for. The next step is technically to um, to for the, mach- the the system to actually use machine learning based on those two steps, so that for future reference, when you're looking at the same supplier or contract or a voucher or a transaction, is then going to start to learn and improve the results from reading the contracts, from reading the vouchers. Um, and to give predictions on where you will find mistakes, quote unquote. So one thing that's helped me, Tor, when dealing with a gargantuan project like this is just Uh get your favorite drawing method 
and it can be by hand or computer and start not a flow chart so much, but kind of an architecture, you know, a flow of the process. It, it can be a flow chart, but to me, flow charts feel a little too detailed and constrained for the kind of thing I'm talking about. But this has saved my bacon so many times, just trying to take the time to pretend I'm ex like, I want to present it to all of you what I'm doing and really getting to that level of clarity. And this is reminiscent of something I discovered in grad school because that was the first time I, I felt like I was really pushing the edge on my own. And I was sharing an office with other guys doing the same. And we'd say to each other, can we have a rollover? And uh, we'd roll over, we'd start explaining our problem to someone else. And before we were a little past halfway through explaining what we were dealing with, we'd get an idea because we were forced to explain it so clearly clearly. And, um, and we said, Hey, thanks for listening. <laughs> We'd roll back over to our desk, but I found that I could get almost the same value by forcing myself to draw it up. Like I had to present it to someone and it, it started giving ideas. But once you're at that level, then you can, you can lay it out a little more detailed. And I'd be glad to get on a private call with you. And then we could show up later and share if we. Well, that'd be cool. Because, yeah. Because the, the thing is, is that I flowcharted basically the the stages, the, the financial analysis, everything I can do in Excel and where I can kind of develop my own algorithms and all these things. All of that, I pretty much have under control in the sense that I know what I want. I know it can be done because similar things have been achieved. It's going from there to the analysis part and the keywords and the matching and starting to involve different source documentation, et cetera, that's where the challenge comes. So uh, I would love to be able to have, uh, I'd like to say 15 minutes, but I am sure it's going to take longer. <laughs> but I think yeah. if that could be a good start, I would love to do that. And yeah, I would love to share it on here uh, later on uh, on some sort of a, uh, uh, an overview of what I'm trying to achieve and with your input and then we can do a, a joint or I can present it later on. Yeah. I would love to. And I'd, I'd actually, when you and I get together tour, once you've drawn it out, um, I'd, I'd love to have more than just me there. I think that would be good. But also, um, I'll just put a plug for my favorite drawing tool out here. It's um, it's a little heavier to use than something like Microsoft Paint or one of those, but it's called Inkscape. It's a free scaled vector graphics program. And it's because it's scaled vec vector graphics that I love it because you can, you can scale things and it, it looks awesome no matter what size you put it at. So I always set the page to the biggest size and I use it like my own free flow version of Prezi. Mm -hmm. it, it helps a ton. Cool. Uh, I, I just use, um, what is it called? The, um, the open office draw. That's what I'm using. I find that very flexible to just make the flow charts top level uh, and to build. Um, and then from there, I just basically go into my Excel and build all my modeling and etc. So I'm, I'm, I started looking at R and a few other things, but I've just come to the conclusion that the to get to that level for me, I don't have the time nor the, I just don't have the time to get there to use those kind of tools. So, 
and learn all over. <laughs> so I'm going to have to rely on you guys. <laughs> but yeah, the other thing I'm looking at, the, the conceptually, uh, the, the, the project, is it achievable? Can it be done without thinking about the cost? I mean, everything is able, can be done in this world, but can this uh, be performed by the existing tools that we have today? Yeah, that, that's the real question. And uh, what I've found is if you've focused on concepts for a long time, Time, it's easier to find those little breakthroughs, those uh, innovations, not at okay. a world level, but just it, uh, sometimes just understanding the concepts better. I'm like, oh, I think this will work. And I go try it. And it, it was very non-sexy, but it worked so good because it was based on, you know, just solid concepts. I'm not okay. saying I always have those wins, but sometimes I do. Eureka. <laughs> okay, thanks. I, I'm not going to, uh, we'll stop it there. So I'll get in touch with you uh, after now and I'll, we'll see if we can schedule some time uh, if you have some free time and then we'll talk later on. Thanks. Right on, guys. Looking forward to seeing what comes of this. Next question is up to Mark. And I think the brain power for that question might have just dropped off the last couple of people, but you had a question regarding build versus buy. Go for it. Yeah. Also, real quick, towards something you might want to look up is Elasticsearch um, for keywords. Uh, I don't know if that fit your use case well, but we've been using it at my company. Um, and it's been it's been pretty, pretty cool seeing how it works um, for that. And it may not be the full thing, but it can solve maybe part of it. Um, so someone just a keyword to look up uh, for uh, for my question about build versus buy. So I for context, uh, current project I'm working on is just exploring what would building an ELT pipeline in my company um, look like and really upgrading our data warehouse. And so um, one of the books I read that gave a high level overview of this, they gave the kind of trade-offs of build versus buying solutions. And so I'm very curious, you know, people's thoughts uh, and for further context, I'm going to have to come up with a solution for, for our current pain points. And I'm to present that to leadership saying like, I think we should invest our resources doing X, Y, Z, or we should invest our money into X, Y, Z, right? So I'm just really curious people's thought process um, for data solutions, you know, what questions they ask themselves on like, is it worthwhile to spend the time to build something versus buying a, a solution? So a great example would be like Fivetran um, for like data ingestion versus building out the pipelines myself. Um, that one's probably a better buy, but, <laughs> um, but I'm just curious people's thoughts on on that process and then going to leadership to make those cases. Something about this question reminds me of like this concept of the trying to determine the optimal size of a firm. And it's pretty much all comes down to transaction cost, right? So if there's a particular function that a firm is trying to do, right? If that thing is so complex, so hard to do that it costs more to outsource it out, then just bring it in-house, the transaction cost for that, then just do it in-house. But if it's cheaper to outsource, then just outsource it. I know that's kind of like a, not a clear answer, but that's kind of the line of thinking I would take because, you know, as my company, like I'm first data scientist, there, we've got a very small data science team and we do end up having to buy some tech or some managed solutions, but that's after we do an estimate of how much of my effort it would take, how much of effort it would take for, you know, a solutions architect inside and, you know, maybe another engineer to help me out. Um, and because it's only a few of us working on it, how long would that take in that cost amount? And usually it makes more sense just to pay somebody else to do it because it frees us up to worry about other problems, right? So that's kind of the way I would think about it. 
It's if, if the time, energy, resources dedicated to doing this solution stop you from doing more impactful work for the business, right? And prevents you from doing activities that bring in more money, then just outsource it, pay the cost, and then focus your energies and efforts on doing those things that are going to be maximum ROI for the amount of time you put in. Um, but I'd love to hear what anybody else says. Greg? I, I, I agree with, with Harpreet. And to me, it's kind of like a more of a cost benefit analysis type thing. So I'm going to keep it kind of like business-ish. So uh, the way I'd like to think about it is to really uh, analyze the future cost of ownership of, of, of your strategy. So if you're, uh, you know, purchasing the service of somebody, a third-party service, uh, and then you're using that, uh, analyzing what the benefit will be, and if that benefit uh, is scaling, then what will be your future cost of you know using that service in the long term? But if you build it from scratch, think about if you build it from scratch, now you become the owner of that total supply chain of that technology. And by scaling, how much does it cost you to scale, right? By you being the owner. So think about that future cost of ownership to make that decision. So what, what the, the, the two strategies, what do they give you uh, how do they help your business grow? And um, as you grow, your cost also is impacted and uh, which will get higher faster than the other. You uh, controlling that supply chain versus uh, you outsourcing it uh, or licensing it and, and, and make that decision based on that. Russell, you've got some good insights here in the chat as well. Yeah, I was just saying that uh, I think whilst this is strictly in the in the tech space, I think it translates well to a lot of things. Uh, so I use an example, uh, my back garden at the moment, our fences need to be repaired. There's been some, some bad weather, some high winds recently, and uh, they're not doing too well. Uh, I'm capable of doing this myself. I'd like to do it myself. I'm quite a crafty person, um, but I have the time to do it. Um, so uh, I can get someone else in to do it. It's going to cost a lot of money. Therefore, I'd rather not pay that money. I'd rather, you know, set, find the value by saving that money by doing it myself. However, the time that I would lose, either from taking time off work or social time to do it when I'm wanting to, to chill after such long workouts, if that equates to, you know, a, a value that's actually greater than the cost of bringing someone in to do it, it's actually better just buy the bullet and spend that money. The only wild card that I put in there is that, you know, if you can't find someone to do the job that you would want to, so you get someone to come in, you're going to be disappointed with it and end up redoing it again, then it's not worth it. But, you know, if you've got uh, if you've got confidence that they can do it to a, to a good enough level, then, yeah, go do it that way. Yeah, some excellent advice. I think we're all, to a certain extent, talking about the same concept, which is which is uh, good to hear. Um, Seth, clarify anything? It, it does definitely give you some key terms to kind of look at for like best practices. Also really like, Greg's point because like, I, I, I couldn't put it into words but like if I build it then I'm going to be the owner <laughs> and then um, that might take away time in the future for me from doing things and, and pipeline data pipelines are eventually going to break um, so like do I want to be in that role <laughs> yeah it's transaction costs right that's what it comes down to especially if blockchain right is in uh, in development because your name's going to be stuck to that forevermore <laughs> Right on, man. Well, guys, we'll go ahead and call it a wrap. Thank you guys so much for hanging out and chilling with us this Friday afternoon. So good to see all of you guys. Remember to vote for your favorite data community content creator. We've got a bit.ly short link. The back half of that is data-creators-awards. So I'll go ahead and I'll put that link right here into the chat 
for all of you guys. Please do help us spread the word and share this with everyone that you know who is a data lover um, because we can't make this thing happen without you guys. So please go ahead and share that link. Be sure to check out the episode that released um, just today with Dave Kelly. That'll be a uh, awesome. This is broken. Awesome. Heartbreak. Oh, is it? Uh, hold on. It might be uh, bit.ly. Hold up. <laughs> bit.ly dot data dash creator dot creators dash award a w a r d <laughs> oh my god bitly dash data that creators that award so i spelt it wrong i think uh, it's supposed to be there's supposed to be a bitly there okay so that's that's what happens okay. so http colon slash slash bitly then the back half is data dash creators dash awards um so yeah go go for, for that there'll be a great time um yeah, go check out the episode I did with Dave Kelly. I think you guys will really enjoy that. Keep an eye out for um, essentially the interview I did with John Crone, Super Data Science. I'll be released on April 1st. Take care, guys. Have a good rest of the evening. Don't forget, we got this going on Sunday morning as well. Comment ML Office Hours. Come and check that out. And remember, guys, we got one life on this planet. When I try to do something big. Cheers, everybody.